Hello and welcome to the Active Shooter Incident Management Podcast. My name is Bill Godfrey, your podcast host. I am joined today in the studio by Mark Rehm, uh, Fire EMS instructor for the C3 Pathways. Welcome, Mark. Yep, thank you. Across the table from us is uh, Adam Penley, uh, one of our law enforcement gurus. Adam, good to have you back. Thank you, Bill. And uh, Don Tootin's right across from me, um, uh, one of our uh, law enforcement guys, long-term, just uh you exited out, what, a couple years ago you retired? I did, yeah, a little over two years. So yeah. uh, it's been good being on the other side. So thanks for having me. <laughs> thanks for being back in, guys. So today's topic, we are going to be talking about chasing ghosts, which is an interesting topic because it takes us down multiple, uh, multiple paths. So one of the common things that we have seen in uh, real-world events is uh, what some people have called echoes or um, echo calls, uh, false calls, things like that, where somebody reports, you know, um, somebody with a gun or active shooting in a different location and, you know, thing, things like this that have be, become a, a kind of commonplace. And so we want to talk a little bit about those, what's kind of driving that and some things that they can do. But then we also want to talk about the idea of chasing ghosts in our tasks, um, so law enforcement, of course, gets a lot of training that says uh, the plus one theory. There's always, you know, if there's one bad guy, there's always plus one more. Um, and how that can result in us chasing ghosts. So, um, Don, why don't you lead us off a little bit? Where where would you like to start? You want to start on the on the inside? Or you want to start at the high level with the calls? Where do you want to go? You know, let's start with the calls. Okay. I mean, let's let's. Uh, I mean, we can start with. Um, Let's just say a critical incident, you know, and, and keeping it on active shooter, you know, incident management. Um, you know, that call goes out of an active shooter or a critical incident. And let's just say that um, I won't use any one specific event, but uh, um, that, that shooting occurs. And then unbeknownst to the people responding, the assailant then leaves. Uh, how many calls start coming in? Well, number one, you have a challenge right off the bat because they have to verify if the person's there or not there. But once they get there and they start putting the suspect information out, you can imagine how many calls you're going to start getting from the public that, hey, I saw this person here, I saw this person there. So now, in addition to the one crime scene that you're working, now you're having to tie up so many resources just to somewhat try to verify and, va and validate these, this additional information coming in. So it's, uh, it's something that we talk about a lot, obviously, is trying to get build that intelligence piece as soon as possible, uh, getting your communications officers and your dispatch on the same page, and then that integration, obviously, between the information that the fire department is receiving, the information that uh, rescue agencies are receiving, and law enforcement getting us all on the same page, putting uh, you know the, that, uh, that bridge, for lack of better terms, in place as soon as possible to try to delineate the uh, good information versus bad information and to dictate out to everybody what they should be responding on. Adam, how common is it to have um, law enforcement officers on the scene that are not uniformed uh, that then trigger well-meaning secondary calls? Um, oh, absolutely. Or just, um, you know, Law enforcement officers are going to respond from every level of the organization and from other agencies as well. Some of them are wearing markings that other law enforcement may recognize, but the public certainly don't know all of the markings of, of some of the other agencies or um, off-duty officers or off-duty detectives that are just wearing a, a small badge around their belt waistline or maybe some other uh, sort of marking. So that person that's going in or out of the scene with a gun or a rifle 
may certainly generate um, additional calls. Um, and to what Don was talking about, it's kind of an interesting example to start us off with of you're actually trying to find a ghost, somebody who's who's left the scene, and you're trying to distinguish uh, a multitude of, of calls of people calling and seeing that particular suspect description you, you sent out. So you really are trying to find that particular person who's ghosted the scene. Whereas the other problem we see a lot of is you may get to the scene and, and you may have your suspect. You've either neutralized the threat, you've got them in custody, or whatever the case may be. But adults are going to flee shooting scenes. And every person that flees is going to be seen by a witness who thinks that that's the person who did the bad deed, right? So that person ran and got into a green van and is, and is driving away with great haste. Somebody's going to call that in as a suspect. And then at the scene, you've got to discern whether or not what you're hearing about this suspect that you do have in custody, that that is your one. You have to trust the early intelligence that says, hey, yesterday we fired that individual. He was mad at the boss, and he's the one that came back and shot everyone, and you have him in custody. Thank you very much. Trust that and understand that now this is your scene. It's secured. Yes, there's still a lot of investigation to be done, but don't spend, don't waste valuable time chasing ghosts that you don't have to chase. Creating chaos. Yep. Sure. Mark, Adam mentioned, uh, you know, people fleeing the scene. On the on the medical side, we see injured that can both flee the scene, uh, take private transport either to a hospital or just someplace away from the scene, and then you end up with somebody that's, you know, got gunshot wounds. How often are we seeing people that are self-evacuating, self-fleeing the scenes, and and what does that turn into in terms of uh, ghost calls? I mean, it, if you look at some of the case study after action reports, of especially the large events, you're going to see that most adults who have the capability of doing so are going to evacuate themselves. They're going to either on foot or they're going to get to their vehicle. They're going to end up at hospitals that have no notification or little notification that they're going to be in, uh, inundated by all of these victims out there. Um, you know, when you're talking about the little ones, you know, you talk about school shootings, which seems we focus on that a lot because that is such a – you know, it tugs at heartstrings, if you will. That's one of those ones that they're very innocent of being impacted. Um, but when we get into the adult environment, it's pretty much more of a normal environment that those people are going to, you know, they're going to evacuate. They're going to do. And, and, and frankly, if I was in that environment, if I was in a shooting environment and I had no um, public safety experience, that wasn't my background, and one of my loved ones or friends got impacted, I would probably be getting out of there as quick as I could. I'd get them to my vehicle, get them to an emergency room, and, and try to leave that scene. So from an accountability standpoint for fire EMS, it becomes a serious problem for us. Obviously, we want the best care for them, but we still want to be able to make sure that we account for all those people who are there. Yeah, and I, um, I think a good example of that is if, you know, if they flee on foot, uh, businesses are the most common target in active shooter events. Sixty um, percent of the time, it's a business uh, number one, number one target. And if you flee, the, if you've been shot, shot in the leg, shot in the arm, whatever, but you're still mobile and you flee that business and flee to a business next door or an adjacent area or across the street, and you come running in and you know somebody's shooting, somebody's shooting, that's going to be a you know another nine one one call at an adjacent business across the street. Um, that that extends it out and can give it the appearance of a uh, of a secondary shooter, larger event, things like that. I'm also kind of reminded of uh, one of the the really unique situations one of our uh, instructors had <clears throat> years ago had an incident 
where there was an international flavor. There was a large number of international people involved. And some of them, uh, the, the, uh, the victims that had been uh, part of the attack, that had been attacked, uh, texted and called uh, to say that they were under attack, that they're, you know, they were, they could hear the shooter next door, they could hear this, they could hear that. And those resulted in follow-on information flowing back into the 911 center with information about a shooter in this location. But it was 15 to 20 minutes old because it was going out international, coming back into the area, and then having to get to the right comm center. Um, and so it ended up being actionable information that was no longer actionable because of the, the lack of timeliness of it. And I remember him telling me they were chasing those ghost calls for hours after that. What are some of the things that we can do to try to bring that under control and to manage for that? Because it is such an expected thing now. Um, Don, why don't you talk a little bit about what you, and then Adam, maybe from the, from the dispatch perspective, um, take us in there. Well, and that's, that's one of the things I was going to start off with is getting that intelligence officer or investigative officer up to dispatch as quick as possible or where calls are being received at, whether it be with your agency, a, an agency that handles that for your police and fire agency. So getting somebody there that's listening to either the fireside radio or the police side or both, listening to both of those. And what would really be good is if you could get a firefighter and a police officer in the same room where dispatch is coming in, especially if it's centrally located. And all the different information coming in, you can start making a quick diagnosis of is it valid, worth looking into, or is this old information based upon the intel that's being gathered from the scene itself. So I uh, I think that's something that we talk about. I think that around the country, it's not it doesn't occur quite as um, as as much as we would like to see it happen. But hey, getting that uh, intelligence inside, uh, you know, the dispatch center as soon as possible, uh, being able to discern what is valid, what's not valid, and then um, you know, like I said, being able to actually put the resources towards the stuff that's a little bit more valid. And, and then uh, I would say again, at the scene, you have to establish and trust the the those early understandings you have of the incident that you have right um, again oftentimes we know that we have the suspect in custody we know that that individual suspect uh, was was found in the parking lot at his vehicle with uh, the equipment that was used in the attack and there's no other witnesses of any other attacker so trust that information uh, we have additional resources at all of the positions that we talk about in an active shooter response uh, to protect against a follow-on attack, to make sure that everyone's safe, but you shouldn't continue chasing every call that comes in um, because of the delay or because of somebody misidentifying a witness or a, or a survivor as a suspect. You need to be able to vet that and trust that. So that early intelligence, both in the communication center and also standing uh, side by side with incident command to understand and paint a picture of what you really have, uh, I think cuts down on on being uh, wasting resources on on these chasing ghosts. Sure. And for those of you that are listening, wondering <laughs> who the kid is in the background having a meltdown, <laughs> we're not torturing anybody. It's yeah. a it's a new studio, and clearly we need to do a little bit of work on our sound insulation. There's a uh, somebody that's just we're simulating a, a uh, critical incident in the background <laughs> yeah, taking place. Uh, and, they're uh, they're a hundred feet away outside our front so. door and having a real meltdown. But uh, <laughs> um, so I, I apologize for that. 
so so back on track, Mark, from an incident management perspective, you're on the scene. Um, you know to expect some of this stuff going on. I think Don and Adam talked about how to try to interdict that from the dispatch sides. What do you need to listen for and um, and act upon or not act upon from the incident command post when it comes to uh, the ghosts or the echo calls? <clears throat> well, obviously, you know, we're going to rely on dispatch and the information they're getting in, and hopefully we have someone from law enforcement that's embedded in dispatch and is going to vent out a lot of that bad information. Um, but I'll, I'll focus initially on the fire EMS side. So from a fire EMS side, as we practice in this class and utilizing the checklist, it, the integrated response allows you to be successful. And if you look at every failure um, of an incident command environment, where they don't integrate fire EMS law enforcement together, it's a failure. They're in silos. They're doing their own thing. And when you integrate, that that allows fire EMS to stand hip-to-hip in the command post and at our tactical triage and transport location. And the information that's coming initially, especially initially, um, about law enforcement's initial response to that location and whatever threat they've encountered and taken down or neutralized or held, whatever they, whatever terminology they're using, whatever they end up with, Fire EMS is getting the first-hand information right then and there. Instead of traveling from the scene to dispatch over to another dispatch and then back down to Fire EMS and getting this third or fourth hand, not that I would think it would get screwed up, um, but, uh, you know, standing next to each other, you, you're getting the same information and you're developing the same action plan, and that's where you're going to be successful. Well, to extend on what Mark's saying, too, the the other thing is is you have rescue task force type resources that are that are that are being set up at stage, and you have resources that are coming to the scene. And where some of these uh, potential survivors that have injuries that have fled to, you manage that with the same resources that you have at the scene. Whereas dispatch may, when somebody runs and says, "I've I've been shot," and they're at a neighboring um, drugstore or something, they've run two blocks to a nearby drugstore and they run in and they say they've been shot. That may route through dispatch and come in as a new shooting call. And if it follows the normal dispatch parameters, you would have a new res- fire rescue crew come in and standing off at a safe distance, wasting time getting to that patient because no one's talking to each other at the original scene. Whereas if you can sort out at the original scene that, hey, that's probably somebody that's fled our shooting, let's get a contact team over there, a rescue task force over there, and make sure they're okay and make sure it's connected and get the resource, use the resources we already have on hand. That's a that's a really good point. And, you know, one of the things, I, I th- and Mark, you were alluding to this, um, with the integration that we do at the command post, that's one of the jobs of the intelligence investigative section. You know, early on I, I, in the, the first, you know, 10, 15 minutes as this thing begins unfolding, uh, you, you know, you're not going to start your investigative component at that at that point, at least not in a meaningful way. But the intelligence piece of that is very much a part of this is, hey, wait a minute, that's, you know, that is, as you said, a block away, two blocks away. Uh, you know, what are the odds? Mm-hmm. Um, and and being able to to nudge somebody at command. So somebody whose head isn't in the attack site, per se, of of trying to find the attacker or take the attacker down or deal with the injured, their head is up a little bit more above that looking at um, all the information come in. So I think that's that's also one of the jobs of that intelligence section to uh, take that in and turn it into meaningful information that you can tell command to either act upon or not act upon because we think it's duplicative information. 
So let's tangent to the other piece of this um, and talk about the ghosts inside. And and this is, um, I think, more of a law enforcement issue than it is necessarily a, a medical thing because most of the instances with the rescue task forces, they're already being kind of told where to go with a very specific mission. Um, though, though not always, but in most cases. So talk a little bit about how that can sometimes go wrong uh, with chasing ghosts inside, how it manifests, why it goes wrong, how, what are some of the fixes that we want to do? I, Don, you want to yeah, take I, that one? Um, you know, it comes down at the end of the day, and, and if, if whoever's had the opportunity to take this class or in the future takes this class, the first thing they're going to learn is this. Uh, we, we have a guide that we give everybody, and we allow them to go down this checklist. And what it does, it keeps them on task. When it comes to internally, uh, we know what our parameters are. We know we're fighting the clock. We, we do our best to teach people that no longer are we trying to clear anything. What we're trying to do is get people down, secure an area, bring those rescue task forces in. Let's move out the victims uh, as soon as possible. We're fighting the clock and not go down the realm of we got to keep searching, we got to keep searching, we got to keep searching. In the past, law enforcement, they don't want to quit. They want to keep going. Where the reality is this, is once you understand what your primary mission is. Yes, it's stopping the threat, but if we take that in increments, once again, we can also start moving those injured out and we can you know, satisfy that, that uh, demon of the clock that, that creeps up, creeps up, up on us, sorry. Um, but that, that's the first thing. Using this checklist helps us out. I think training to understand that, hey, there, there's a bigger mission here. It's not always trying to find somebody that's hiding in a corner. It's getting these injured out and then working with our fire and our EMS uh, personnel and training with them, quite honestly. And kind of going back to some of the other podcasts we've done is having uh, an SOP, basically a standards that we're all agreeing on of, of what we're going to do, training to that standard, then it puts people on the same page. I, th right. I think that's a, a, a really good point. Adam, go ahead. Well, I was just going to say, uh, again, sometimes I think uh, some of our law enforcement listeners might be shaking their head in the background, you know, as they're listening to us, um, because there is going to be uh, probably a justified belief that that first contact team has to continue searching for whoever did this terrible act, right? And, I, and I'll give you that. That first contact team, they can continue being the hunter-killer team. And we've trained them that they have to bypass the injured and keep moving towards uh, the, the, the active uh, stimulus. The driving force. Driving force, whether it's, whether it's uh, maybe a direction of travel, actual gunshots, screaming coming from the end of the hallway. They're going to keep going towards that. However, what we haven't trained people to do very well is you have got to call in what you're leaving behind, and someone has to come fix what you've left behind. So that's why there can be more than one job happening at the same time. Absolutely. You can still be working toward resolving the active threat, but secure what's in front of you with another team so you can begin rescue. Active threat, rescue, and then continue clearing. That's the three very simple priorities. And I, and I should have prefaced what I was saying by the lack of stimulus, I guess, is a good way of mm -hmm. what I was trying to get. Without that stimulus driving you, then, once again, we don't want you chasing something that's not directing you to, to go after it, hunt, right. hunt, hunt and kill it, basically. Right. Um, so I, I agree with everything Adam just said. You know, it's funny. Um, as I observe the behavior, I, I, I've observed many, many times, in fact, it's very consistent, that in those instances when law enforcement uh, encounters the suspect, 
and uh, that uh, they they can account for the suspect. They're in custody. They've been shot. And they're down. You know, whatever the case may be, or they found the dead body. Whatever. When they can account for the suspect, they're very quick to change gears and get into priority two, which is to rescue. Um, but when the killing has stopped or paused or, you know, there's no more gunfire, there's no more driving force, there's no more intel, um, there is, it, and I don't even want to characterize it as a reluctance because I think it's an unconscious behavior to continue driving forward. And the, and the, the consistent change point, you know, and I'd be interested to hear you guys both comment on this. The the to me, there's been one clear delineating mark. Like when you when you have gone from, I'm chasing the last direction of travel. I have an idea of where this guy is. I heard something. I saw something. A witness. You know what we call the driving force. And when you're now clearing, and for me, I, I see it almost consistently, is when they're moving on information. They're walking past doors, they're walking past hallways, they're walking past rooms, and they're going to some place trying to find the individual. But as soon as they feel like what they what was driving them is now stale, well, now they're not walking past doors. They're doing a quick peek on a door, or they're doing a quick look in the room, or they're going doors, or they're, you know, pieing off the hallway corners as they go through things. And to me, as soon as I start to see that behavior, I'm like, okay. You don't know where the guy is now. Um, you're in clearing mode. We're on priority three. We didn't do priority two. I right. think a lot of that has to go back to initial training. It falls back on your training. So you can set, it's unfortunate, but some people will set up that negative training where everything is a shoot scenario or everything is a go in there and kill the bad guy scenario. I think some of that is driven by the media on a lot of the cases that come out that if you don't do anything that we're all going to be held accountable for. Um, Tra training should be set up to where there's unknowns. Mm -hmm. uh, people do flee. Training should be set up where a guy or where somebody comes out and gives up 110%. And, you know, that that's where it ends. It's one person. Training should be where it's multiple factors. Maybe one gives up and one, can, one flees. Without having those multi-facets and you only train to one, go in, kill the bad guy, um, you know, do God's work, and then, you know, then do the rest of what we're supposed to be doing, it sets a tone of, you know what, I forget, this is a multi-phase uh, approach to what we're doing. Yes, we want to keep everybody safe. Yes, we want to have that driving stimulus uh, dictate what we do. But at the same time, we get to a point where, like Adam said, we can we step over so many, but there's a point where if I have no further stimulus to direct me to that, that uh, you know, location to stop this threat, then I need to reevaluate, hold, get what's, you know, uh, other entities up there. Let's start moving the victims out. And now we've cleared cleared we've secured that certain area to so far and then if the stimulus picks back up and then we can continue to go so i think it's tra yeah. training is the biggest thing i would say in the uh, realm of a lot of different agencies and i think that's important and i want to because uh, adam i know you're going to jump in here um 57 percent 57 percent of these events the active killing is done it stops before the first law enforcement officer gets there it's not a small percentage it is yeah. the majority of the time Right. Um, over half the time, the active killing stops before the first law enforcement officer gets there. And so I think it, I just think I agree with you that tr your training has to be structured for all of those kinds of outcomes right. mm -hmm. um, so that you you do uh, train your folks to do that. 
and they and it's not the first time they've encountered it in real life. Adam, go ahead. Right, absolutely. And and again, you have to be thinking in your head. Somebody has to go back and fix what we left behind, right? Whether it's us, we we don't have any more stimulus. Let's go back and help those people. Or I'm calling to tactical and say next contact team has got to go into the into room one and help those people. We're still looking. That's okay. Either either choice is a correct choice based on your circumstances or whatever the case may be, because through training and adrenaline and desire to to find the person who did the terrible deed, I can almost give it that that one team is going to want to keep looking. Yeah, right? you'd almost forgive it. You'd almost forgive it, but they have got to communicate either that they're going to go back and fix what they left behind or that somebody else is dedicated to go back to fix behind. Because to extend on what you were saying earlier, Bill, the worst part is when you see every team is still searching. Yes. And no one has started to focus on um, helping those that have been injured. And all of Mark's folks are stuff, stuck outside. They can't do anything because all the cops are inside searching for ghosts. Yeah, and especially they haven't created a casual collection point and secured that location. Mm-hmm. So we can't even send in our teams because you haven't secured the environment for us to come in. So, again, if, you, if you're just chasing the ghosts, if you're just going out on your own, um, that doesn't do us any good on the fire EMS side. We need to have that secure environment that, to go into. Right. It doesn't have to be 100% clear. Yep. I mean, again, departments all over the country are demonstrating that they're ready to go yep. in. They just need some assurance from us that we've made what we know, what's right in front of us, yep. we've made what we know secure, and that we're continuing to, to try to find and that out example what we used a minute ago about holding room one. Hold room one. We're going to be in there with our rescue task force. We're going to start working on the known patients. Right. And, and what you guys are describing also becomes a key element, uh, the, the immediate action plan. And that's maybe it goes out on the radio. Maybe it's just face-to-face between the team that's there. But, you know, the other thing is, is what's the size of your team? Yeah. You know, if you're in there, if your first contact team happens to be four or five people and you're not, you don't have contact with the suspect, but you've got contact with the injured, Maybe you split the team, um, but you got to have those discussions and that immediate action plan. Or if the team's going to hold what they got, hey, uh, you know we're going to stay here. If it if it kicks off again, uh, you and you stay here, uh, and we're going to go, uh, you know, pursue whatever the threat is and things like that. I, and I think those things they get hit in training, but it seems like somehow it gets lost in the adrenaline of the moment. We get caught on a on a single track and we're we have a tough time shifting gears i think supervision plays a big piece of that also somebody has to take control and see the entire you know that fifth man that we talk about uh that that first initial supervisor that says okay i've got three four i've got five people inside as my initial contact team the next one that comes in, and they're describing what they're, you know, obviously seeing and doing back to that uh, initial supervisor. That supervisor is the one that helps uh, drive the direction of those contact teams. Whether that they you continue to send your first contact team in for the, you know, continue to do your uh, search for that stimulus, basically. Your second contact team has been given a specific mission, as well as, you know, to secure that area. Supervision's a big piece of it. Uh, without it and without being very vocal and without uh, communication back and forth, um, there's a good chance that the wheels are going to fall off some, you know, somewhere with, during the event. But Bill, to add to what Don just said, um, what I see more on the fire EMS side on the rescue task force is that they complete their mission, but instead of calling the triage group supervisor, they're chasing their ghosts. Yeah. They're chasing the people who are not known, 
There's no intel, there's no evidence, there's no reason for them to be going down these hallways looking for additional patients. Yeah, searching. So, mm -hmm. yep. and instead of just calling up the triage group, supervisors say, listen, we've completed our task. What's our next assignment? It may be just hold in place in room one. It's secured right now. Law enforcement contact teams are going out there and they're clearing rooms. If they come across a patient, we'll redeploy you. Or it may be simply return to staging. We need to rehab you and debrief you. You know, but once they start chasing those non-existent patients, those ghosts out there, it becomes problematic because if a real event pops up, they're not in the right place. They're not where they they're should be. Yeah, it's interesting you mentioned that, Mark. Uh, it it kind of slipped my mind, but we do see that as one of those, um, uh, uh, I don't want to call it negative training, but one of, those, one of those training hiccups that we see is they'll get – like you said, they get done with their task or they got assigned a task, but by the time they get there, that task is already done. Another team is already completed and they're not needed. So they're going to go look for work yep. instead of calling back to the boss and saying, you know, that task is complete or I'm not needed on that task. Where else do you need me? We now go looking for mystery work and making up our own work as opposed to getting uh, a task and a purpose again and exactly. getting another assignment. Yep, Sticking within your lane. You were given a task, go do that task, or if it's already been done for you, come back and get another task. So um, let's let's go around quickly and kind of talk about what you're at the command post. You're either at tactical triage and transport, or you're at the command post. What are some of the red flags that tell you that you've got some of this stuff going on? Oh, uh, I mean, I think the biggest one is that you have not heard about the security of a of a casualty collection point. Um, these things should happen in relatively rapid succession. Contact team one, contact team two. They're going in. They're searching for the active threat. But then you hear radio silence. They're not, they're not encountering anyone, but at the same time, they're not calling back the location of the injured patients, and they're not calling back a location for something that needs to be secured so you can begin sending in rescue task forces. Um, and and it, it, would be, it would be echoing in my head the, the turn of phrase that I say all the time, and that is that known bleeding does not stop while you search for unknown threats. So every minute of that radio silence where you're neither getting a threat nor are you securing a casualty collection point, is someone bleeding closer to their death. Yeah, I would say the uh, chaos that's going to be on the radio because you're going to have a lot of what-ifs going on, uh, no rescue task force being asked, and nobody taking control. That's the biggest thing. When everybody is out doing their own thing, they all want to talk. When nobody you know, takes control and assigns one person to talk on the radio, uh, that's when you know that it's no longer following a process. It's kind of everybody's out doing their own thing. And I'm going to put the, the I, I don't hate to use the word blame, but I'm put the responsibility back on that triage officer and, and to a certain extent the tactical officer that once they know that they're getting down low on patients that are still on the scene, known patients, you know, that were in that casualty collection point, they're, they're not challenging the RTFs that are on the site and say, what, is you, which, what are you doing right now? Do you have a job right now? And if they said, no, we're not here, or we've gone down to room 25, well, they didn't know that. They should be challenging their groups and understanding what the patient count is based upon the amount of responders, and do they still need them there? And they need to take some responsibility on that side, too. It's not just the boots on the ground, the people inside the structure that may be freelancing or going off and chasing ghosts. It may be that the supervisors aren't paying attention to what's going on, mm -hmm. and they got to make sure they pay attention and have accountability. Yep. Those are all really good examples. I, I, think, I think if you're downrange, it's easy to see. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, if you're on 
a contact team, um, especially if you happen to be, as happens sometimes, you get a sergeant, lieutenant. Heck, we've had the police chief be the first or second one there, yeah. and and they're no longer part of command now. They're they're part of the contact Absolutely. team. But if you've got some leadership and you know better, um, and you downrange and kind of seen this go on, uh, you know, see something, say something. I mean, mm -hmm. as silly as that sounds, uh, because it it ends up. Uh, you know, we were talking about this in another podcast when we were all together. Uh, uh, slow is smooth, and smooth is fast. And if you don't, if you don't get on the right priority, you you get punished by the clock. And well, and the cost of that is people die. Right. And if you are one of the resources downrange, remember it's okay to delegate up. And what I mean by that is, if if you see a job that's not getting done because you're you're either you're overwhelmed, you're busy, or you're on a different mission, call it up. You know, tell Tactical, we need another team to go into room 25 because it hasn't been secured yet. And that's it. You know, delegate up because Tactical can't does not have x-ray vision. They can't see everything that's going on. Um, and they'll get you the resources that you need. You just have to ask for it. You know, that's a really good point. And it's it's one of the things, you know, Mark, on the fire side, I think that we constantly fight a little bit against. You know, in our world, on a typical structure fire, the, the incident commander is the all-knowing, all-seeing, you know, um, all-thinking one. And they can, in most cases, that's okay because they can stand on the sidewalk and look at the building and where the flames are showing and where the smoke is showing and how much is smoke and where is it moving and how's it coming. And it tells them an awful lot about what's going on inside that building. But in the case of an active shooter, you're standing on the curb. You don't see Jack. Yep. You got no idea what's going on in that building. And so you really are reliant on those crews inside. Exactly. And that's why we emphasize in the advanced class and even the basic class that those teams inside need to make those critical decisions because the incident commander can't do it. And you really don't want the tactical triage and transport officer doing. The example I'll use is like naming where the casualty collection point is. Incident command has no clue where the best in, or casualty collection point would be or the ambulance exchange point. Oh, yeah, that's the, a good The one. people who have the best eyes on that are the boots on the ground. Those are the people that, especially that first contact team or maybe the second contact team, but that first RTF when they get in there, they got to make those determination what works best for them for the patients they have. And if, if you got someone in an incident command post with a book open and looking to go, this is probably a good spot right there, it's probably going to be a failure. Mm -hmm. So uh, let's go around because uh, Carla gave me the 30-minute signal a little, a little bit ago. Uh, let's go around and hit real quick one tip for of, uh, uh, avoiding chasing ghosts. I will say discipline. Uh, is the biggest thing and understanding what your objectives are. I would say follow the priorities. Uh, you know, deal with the active threat, begin rescue, but remember clear is important. Not only, even if law enforcement feels like they definitely have the one and only suspect, the disgruntled employee who came back and we got him today, you're having to clear for patients that may have fled and are now hiding in a closet in a different building, injured and scared to come out. Clearing is still an important priority as well, even though we're focusing on rescue and, and that we've already dealt with the active threat. Mark? Integrated response and share and tell. I mean, if, if we put our fire EMS and law enforcement together hip to hip and their game plan is one and the same and they're sharing intel, that game plan should be one and the same. 
And I'm going to say, echo something you guys said earlier, which is on the Intel side, you got to get somebody into the comm center. Uh, it, you know, it's one thing when you're working in a large urban or consolidated metro comm center and they got plenty of people that can get on task, but that's not the case across most of the country. There are many, many comm centers where there's only one, two, three dispatchers on duty. They are going to be overwhelmed. You got to get somebody else in there whose task it is to try to sort through what is new and what is old. Gentlemen, thank you very much uh, for coming in. Uh, fun, fun topic talking about chasing, chasing ghosts, something we see on a regular basis. Uh, and with that, uh, I want to say to you, if you haven't subscribed to the podcast already, uh, if you listen to the audio version, please do subscribe. Uh, if you're watching us on YouTube, uh, subscribe there. Uh, you can hit that bell to kind of get an announcement, a uh, notification of when there are uh, new um new releases of the podcast series I want to shout out and thank you carla uh, torres our producer for once again making us uh, sound a whole lot better than we are um, and with that please please do share uh, the podcast with others it's important that we get the information out to everybody and with that uh, stay safe until next time take care <laughs>